Okay, re restart. Oh god, I should have gone back before two beers or three beers ago when I was at a good beer level. I worked so hard on this episode too. What's wrong with me? You're listening to the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast. Pop a beer and throw an earbud in your ear. Now, here is your host. Listen, I can barely tie a shoe, let alone figure out this thing. And isn't that funny how people say not to be an asshole, yeah, but I've seen they go on to be an asshole? My skin met the asphalt. But these new new ways kit my... All right, a couple of blurbs. Whatever they do with cocaine. The victim. I mean, guess. It's, it's usually such a horribly set up light, but they like how it looks. It's a cafe racer with alloy manks, racing tank, and clip-ons, and all that jazz. The Soma actually was purchased by uh, the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. Yeah. You know, after this interview, I sound like a fat, hairy, bearded slob. Um, so I'm familiar with the long hours and the uncomfortable seat. Kangaroos are just leaping down the street every day. Um, all right, technically all chaps are assless, right? Or else yeah. you just Tec- be pants. I don't have it perfected. I have to stop talking shit. The more I talk it, the more my bike messes up. My wife's like, you're 41 and started a race career. I'm like, yeah, and it's amazing. Yeah. Yes, I am guest number 632 on Creative Writing Podcast. And I have been programmed to uh, answer all questions perfectly. As big as motorcycle industry is, very few people have actually ever even laid eyeballs on a confederate on an actual confederate in the flesh even fewer have ridden them did you get to do that dave did you <laughs> yes absolutely he's actually in a movie i thought it was a good book I, I didn't want to put it down i wanted to know what happened next but it was not my typical genre all right well now you know what you're in for i do this show with no clothes on okay well that's not entirely true but one thing is true and that is that I'm excited for this week. This week is the show, folks. This is the one we've been leading up to for quite a long time. This weekend, there's so much stuff going on in the motorcycle realm that I can't even tell you. You know, I don't know what's happening in your part of the world. I have no idea. But let's start off with Bike Week. Bike Week kicked off last week in Daytona. Uh, you know, not only with motorcyclists arriving and and having a good time and, and experiencing everything that is, you know, historic about Bike Week. But also, Supercross happened last week. Uh, and, you know, here's here's how it went. They're going to have the Supercross, and then, then I think they had Ricky Carmichael's School of Supercross Junior or something like that. I don't really follow Supercross, but that kicked off last weekend. Today was the Harley-Davidson Daytona TT. Did you watch it, folks? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Historic. First time the twins have jumped uh, on a TT course since, like, the 80s. And that's why I'm so pumped about this season in general. Because they're going to be doing... They're going to be making a lot of history this year. You know, bringing back the nostalgia and remaking history. Um, You know, it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing racing. Got to be honest... I didn't see it all. Had a little thing you might, if you have kids, you might know it's called Open House, where you go and you look at all the schoolwork they've been doing thus far in the year. Um, couldn't have happened on a worse night, right? 
Oh boy. So I did that and I watched up until the point that I literally had to jump in the car and go. But um, yeah, so I didn't see any of it. I saw the results. I wasn't surprised. Um, but I can't wait to get back and watch the couple mains because I saw I saw the singles mains. I did not get to see the twin mains. So, but those qualifiers and the LCQs, just the whole format of the race, so much better, in my opinion, than it has been uh, in the last few years that I've been following it. And it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing thing. Uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I got to go to an event a couple weeks ago that's going to tie right in with this episode. But today, man, on my calendar, if you if you go to our creative writing uh, Facebook page, you'll see we post a lot of events there uh, about stuff that's coming up and, and happening. Not all of them in, in SoCal because got listeners everywhere, but I wanted to be, you to be aware that the Daytona TT was happening tonight, today. Made sure to post up the links where you could watch it live and this and that. If you missed it, uh, it won't be available right away. They usually... Uh, you know, edit it or do post whatever they do to it. It's it's usually available the next weekend. So while they do all the officiating and traveling and whatnot, uh, and then go to record next weekends, they uh, basically are going to, um, you know, they'll make this weekend or today's race available uh, in a week. So if you missed it, you're gonna have to wait a little bit. But it was, oh my god, it was so. So cool. And if you thought that if, if you paid attention to the X Games and how I talked about some of the X Games tracks looking like motocross tracks because they were so bumpy, um, this one this one actually was. And let's let's continue on with our talk about bike week. So bike week uh you know happens every year in Daytona and it, it's not just racing, but it has a lot to do with racing. It's similar to Sturgis, where you know it started out as a race turned into rally and uh, just has racing on both ends. So like I mentioned last week, they had the couple of supercrosses there or motocrosses and they actually built part of the motocross track there on the infield where the TT race was to be held. So what happened was they went down there, they prepped it. Uh, I mean, I think the East coast and, and parts of the East right now are getting, you know, hammered with rain and the weather has turned back to normal like here it was raining forever and it was all warm over where where everybody else is on the other side of the country when it's normally very cold over there and warm over here you know we do we usually do have a mild uh, mild spring so basically what happened was this week it flipped back to normal it's been hot as all get out here and i think they got some rain there and they got, you know, the rest of the country got hit with snow. So it's kind of gone back to normal. And what that means is that there's going to be some water down on the track. But it turns out for motocross, you know, that's perfect. And, uh, you know, the Florida uh, sand and everything down there is great. And I heard that uh, Ricky Carmichael designed perhaps the track uh, for this year's Supercross down there. And that it was a really cool technical track. So that's all good and great. I don't really follow Supercross, but it sounds like it was fun. And it sounds like the weather was perfect for it. Had it been the other way around where uh, it was abnormally warm there or whatever, it might have been a different story. So they had the Supercross last weekend. Then they got a tear. They had really, they had built the Daytona TT track under the Supercross track uh, and then laid down the Supercross track over it. 
and built it and did everything they needed to do so that after the the supercross they tore it could tear it down and get some more water or whatever they needed to put on the daytona track to get it ready and get the surface prepped so i mean the guys that are working daytona really have their hands full because not only did they do two different supercrosses last weekend they're doing the they did the TT today after scraping the supercross track off and then on Saturday they're going to have the uh, Daytona 200 so that's a historic race you'll hear a little bit about that later but i mean talk about you know the the facilities guys just out there all week during bike week having one heck of a heck of a time out there doing all the stuff they need to do to get all these races and all the entertainment and that's not even mentioning like the stunts and the other shows that go on down there so it's pretty incredible and from what i heard they have like a whole dealer it's almost like a whole you know, they integrate bike rate week with all this great racing and Daytona International Speedway and all the heritage that goes on with that place. So they've got everything kind of integrated into one. So, I mean, the facilities guys there just have to, this week is probably like where they make all their money, right, for the year until the car racing starts, like the, the Daytona 500 and all that stuff. So pretty interesting when you find out how much prep it actually took to bring this weekend to you. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Before we start yapping about that, I mean, a, a, a real quick aside, you know, that that's how the, the track prep worked and, and all that great stuff. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of other things that are coming up. Just I wanted to make sure everybody got to see the TT today because it was really history in the making. And my kids, it was lost on them, but whatever. And my wife, I was like, oh, my God, this is historic. It's the first time the twins have been uh, inside the speedway on a TT and the first time they've jumped them since the eight. And she was just staring at me like... You know, I was talking about the reproductive cycle of some frog from, you know, New Zealand's, you know, some one tree in New Zealand. It was, you know, that's that's basically the response that I got. But I know everybody on this show knows that how much I love the TT and specifically um, going to tie all this in together to the event that I went to a couple of weeks ago. So I'm just excited. I can't really I can't wait to watch the racing. It's going to be great. Uh, tomorrow, a Daytona Concrete Clash on the Coast, um, and that's presented by none other than Ivy League, who I've always talked about, too, ever since starting the show. I think Ivy League puts on great events. Uh, I think they do a superb job of making everything flow. Takes a lot of work. Their grassroots effort, they, you know, hooligan racing probably wouldn't have got a really good start here in SoCal had it not been for Ivy League taking it around the country. So good, good on Brian Bell and the team. That's going to be at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida tomorrow. Uh, I believe it starts at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time or whatever, whatever we are now. The clocks have sprung forward one hour in certain states in America and parts of the globe. So if you are uh, trying to check that out, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that might be on Fans Choice as well. Fanschoice.tv if you're looking for some flat track action. And uh, Friday also, Johnny J Swing, uh, friends of the show. I'm always also talking about how awesome they are. They've, you know, we've had both uh, two members of Johnny J Swing on the show. And they've donated an awesome little prize package for us for our uh, Solstice Slam giveaway. And both avid motorcyclists. And so why not go ahead and check out their stuff? They're going to be at the Inland Empire 
Um, it's basically like a all sw- a all swing weekend. And if you're going to be over in Spokane, that's where they're going to be. It's the Inland Empire Shuffle, a full weekend of swing dance and live music. Johnny J and the Flatfoot Flugees are going to be playing Friday, St. Patty's Day from 8 to 10 at the Spokane Women's Club, uh, 1428 West 9th Avenue in Spokane. So make sure you go check Johnny J out. I know, I actually know a couple people that are going to be going to the show. Um, they emailed me and said, hey, I live in Coeur d'Alene. I'm sure I've gone to, you know, if I see the Vintage Bike Nights, I'll go check out 59 Cafe. I'll give Johnny J, uh, you know, a what's up. So that is awesome. Saturday, um, the 18th, there's going to be a garage company um, and born free, like, pre-party. That's going to be down in Inglewood. And that is basically the dudes from, uh, you know, garage company, which is, an awesome shop here in LA that's been there for a long time. Um, they support the Moto Moto Corsa Classica that I went to last year. Um, and so now they're having a spring party to support Born Free and Garage Co. They're going to have a whole bunch of stuff. It's from 12 to 6 on Saturday, March 18th, 956 West Hyde Park Boulevard in Inglewood, which is kind of like, you know, the heart of LA sort of down, you know, you, you know where it is if you're from LA, but anyway, born free is going to be coming up this year, I think in July, the end of July ish. So they're having a little pre-party. I think they're raising funds for that right now. So that's going to be the 18th, the 19th hell on wheels at Lake Elsinore TT is going to be going down. And this is going to be, you know, Hell on Wheels puts on some of the coolest stuff. They put on the Halloween Hill Climb every year at Glen Helen, and that is such a rad event. Uh, Jamie Robinson from Moto Geo has a good article on that. If you've never seen it before, um, you can just look up Jamie Robinson or Moto Geo or Halloween Hill Climb, and you'll get all sorts of results. But they also put on the Hot August Nights, which I've gone to the last few of those. Um, they put on a lot of uh, steeplechase events and now they're doing the TT out here at Lake Elsinore which of course is like a, a famous and historic race course where they do uh, I believe they do GPs out at uh, Lake Elsinore which is Grand Prix you know so it's a big deal and it's similar to Glen Helen where it's historic yet almost nobody knows about it if you ever saw on any Sunday you'll know the El- Lake Elsinore GP famous uh, by Mal- made famous by Malcolm Smith and Steve McQueen in the on any Sunday movies they're not going to be racing through the town and stuff like the uh, the GP they're gonna be out uh, on the t- at the TT on the um, making their little little course out there so it's gonna be cool it's gonna be like a sort of like a steeplechase but it, it's really rad and Lake Elsinore um, is a pretty good event. I mean, a good uh, venue. So yeah, go check that out if you've got the time and if you're in the area, that would be superb of you. Now, other stuff that's coming up uh, this week, this is going to be uh, LA stuff. And, and Bike Week's actually going to be ending uh, after the Daytona 200. People are probably going to be going home after that. So mm, there's always that. If you're down in Florida right now, I'm sure it's going off. Uh, Moto Chop Shop here in LA, they are having a little shindig. That's also going on Saturday from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. That's a very popular time slot, as you can see. It's their four-year anniversary, uh, and they're having a moto parts swap meet, basically. Um, it says, bring your motorcycle parts, buy, sell, and trade. And you can email Kevin at motochopshop.net 
to reserve a free space. Now, this happened a couple months ago at one of the shops, I believe, in Texas. Uh, free space. I mean, it's so cool that people are doing free swap meets where you don't have to pay to play. And I mean, you might just have a few things and it's really brings community together is what that does. So it's pretty cool. And I believe they're at New Digs. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, they just moved, uh, I want to say like a year ago or something like that. So their new, their new, um, address is, uh, 6850 Valinian Avenue in Van Nuys. I can't see the stinking address. That is awesome. Uh, but at any rate, just look up Moto Chop Shop and you'll get, you'll, fi- you'll find where they are. If you really want to go, you'll figure it out. Uh, also, March 19th, Newcomb's Ranch Pole Position Charity Event. This is pretty interesting because this is basically uh, Motorsport Exotica's kicking off the 2017 SoCal riding season with a Pole Position Charity Event uh, for the Best Friends LA, which is a no-kill animal organization. And so basically they've got 5000 bucks and raffle prizes. Um, they've got helmets, quick shifters, jackets. Uh, they're offering some track days. They're offering stuff like, you know, tires and, and some stuff for the bike. Uh, it says they right here, it says they've got coaching from the California Superbike School and the Yamaha Champion Riding School and everything else in between. So basically, it's just a big charity auction raffle. The ride up to Newcomb's Ranch is super fun anyway. I mean, it's, it's rad just to go up there and get a drink of water, get a sandwich and watch MotoGP, let alone be able to support a charity, possibly win some cool raffle stuff, you know, all the stuff getting donated to help uh, no-kill animal things, which, you know, I got my dog from uh, a shelter and she turned out to be a pretty cool little dog. And unfortunately, with the amount of people that do not spay and neuter their pets, heck, you know, there's a lot of them out there that aren't as fortunate as that. So come hang out, listen to live music. Uh, Newcomb's Ranch, always a good place to spot some pretty radical bikes. Um, Everything from custom to exotic to run of the mill. Um, Just they'll be having the food coming all day. It says, get your suspension adjusted by uh, Suspension Matters, which is a GP race suspension technician. So you can do all that. Have your picture taken with our beautiful models, yada, yada. That's It sounds like a fun time. So if you're able to go up there, uh, that's going to be going down. Also, on March 19th, there's going to be a ride out to the Poppies. They're going to meet at 930, kickstands up at 10. It's put on by uh, Bells on Bikes. They're going to be meeting at uh, Tom's Farms in Corona, which is uh, pretty... If you don't know where Tom's Farms is, you probably have never driven up the 15. But anyway, there's going to be another ride out to the Poppies on the 26th, different group. But the Poppies are going crazy right now. I actually snapped a pic the other day on the side of the freeway. Uh, All this rain that we've been having has really brought out the Poppies in full effect. It's really beautiful, actually, and it's kind of cool. So there's that happening. March 24th, super, super, super important event. It's called the uh, Solstice Slam. No, no, no. Solstice Slam. That's right. Yours truly. We're putting on the Solstice Slam. We have got a bunch, a bunch of great entries so far. I'm super excited about it. Um, As you know, here's what happens. I didn't really go too far into detail this year because I figure people are probably catching up on backlogs or they probably already heard it. So 
I'm sorry to take new listeners for granted that may not listen uh, back too much behind this. So last year we had a thing called the Solstice Slam, and this is where it's your chance. This whole show is about people, motorcyclists doing cool stuff. It's not about like really cool motorcyclists, and it's not about like being in the scene. It's literally about the community and everybody as a motorcyclist. So Solstice Slam is your way to take over the show since you don't have your own podcast or else I'd obviously be listening to it or you'd be pumping it out and and working on getting your stuff out. Just email some stuff here. Send some pictures. If you have bike builds, if you have, uh, I mean, this is the one time a year you, you can do it. You can get away with anything. You can make up a story. You can tell that whopper. Hey, we keep everything anonymous if you if you don't want your name mentioned. So uh, you can tell us if you need to vent something and have a little cathartic uh, uh, telltale here of the time you broke someone's bike and didn't tell them and then just put it back in their shed and <laughs> or whatever you did, you know, maybe you ran over somebody and there's a body out in the middle of the desert and you need to just get it off your chest. I won't tell, but at any rate, if you, you know, it's also if you've got like a cool build and you, you're like, man, I don't want to start a blog just for this one bike, but it is pretty bitching and like all my friends dig it. Hey, Salsa Slam, that's the place to go. You got a rad ride story. You got commentary. A lot, a lot of times you know, you don't want to leave feedback on a show or you want to leave feedback on like 20 shows and I'm doing a crappy job. I listen to podcasts all the time. I know how it feels when you hear them say the wrong thing and you're sitting there uh, in your underwear eating a banana screaming at the speaker like, oh my God, I can't believe you misinformed the people like that. Go ahead, send it in. Tell us anything, absolutely anything, motorcycle-related, art-related, if you're a motorcyclist and you paint bikes. If you are uh, you know, a graphic artist and you love drawing motorcycles, it doesn't matter. As long as it's creative and it has to do with you and it has to do with motorcycles or you're a motorcyclist, I don't give a rats. A rats doesn't give a rats. Send it in to the Salsa Slam. We'll stick it in. And we've set up some little prize packs. Uh, Dan from Daily Bikers has sent some swag and Johnny J has sent some swag. I've got some random swag that I've picked up at motorcycle shows over the years and it's been lying around waiting for somebody to submit the right story to win it. So we got this whole little bundle and then I think I'm even going to throw in for the for the top prize and and I'm going to get some people to help me judge on this uh, to see what what is the best, what's considered the best stories. We're gonna throw. I'm gonna throw in something special, um, and I'm. I'll tell you what it is. I guess on the day of the Solstice Slam. So that's gonna go in with the first prize. Second prize, you know, we still have uh, some more promotional stuff from Johnny J and Dan at Daily Bikers. And third place, um, you might get a Johnny J record. I really want to get out his music or their music, I should say, because it's about motorbikes. And what else is cooler than getting music about motorbikes is that it comes on a record. And if you don't know what a record is, OMG, you probably know what a cassette is because like they're making a huge comeback. So at least you know what a record is. You can leave it in your car and melt it because you're like, oh, I didn't know they melted because I don't know what a record is. So anyway, Social Slam, March 24th. That's all you need to know about that. Atlanta, short track, uh, the next round of the AFT series, which is just so awesome that there's going to be like 18 rounds this year, March 25th. And uh, you can also catch that on fanschoice.tv. They provide Excellent coverage. They have excellent um, 
the the uh, videography is just so excellent. You know, it's like a it's like a professional. Um, basically, it's like a professional setup. And I watched Fans Choice stuff even before I knew what Fans Choice was, and I thought, wow, this is really great. Like, this is awesome that these guys are doing it. And now they've hooked up with like some really great organizations. They do IMSA races. If you want to watch car, they do some. Uh, NASCAR, but it's not like the major NASCAR. It's like the minor, the the Bush League NASCAR stuff. So you can see maybe your favorite dirt track by your house where they're racing like late model modified dirt cars and stuff like that. Uh, they've got other, which is like European stuff on there. They've got all sorts of cool stuff on there, and they do, and, and they're so good at it. It's just amazing to me um, the job that they do and the production value, and the fact that you're getting to see all this stuff live as it happens. And it's not like watching it on TV where you got to wait for a commercial, and then when you're sitting there in the stands and like we're in commercial time, folks, like take a three minute break, blah blah blah, and then you do like. T- you know, 10 laps and then it's like commercial time again. No, no, this is straight up. No commercials. The only time they stop is when people crash. Otherwise it's like everything on the fly, on the go, just as it would be if you were there watching it because you are there watching it. So I can't say enough good stuff about fans choice. Check out the Atlanta short track, March 25th at fanschoice.tv. It's going to be at the uh, Dixie speedway in Woodstock, Georgia. March 26th, Motorcycle Ride to the Poppy Reserve. This is the other one that I was talking about. Let me give you the details as I check them right here. So they're going to meet at Starbucks at the Burbank Empire Center, which is 1711 North Victory Place in Burbank. They're going to meet there. um, Let me see. At the Target and Lowe's at the 5 Freeway exit Burbank. Okay. They're going to meet there. Uh, The first stop is going to be the Rock Inn. Uh, historicrockin.com if you want details. It's in Lake Hughes, California. The final destination is going to be, uh, it says it's still tentative based on poppy blooming. So we have a backup location. First choice is the Antelope Valley Poppy Reserve and the second hill choice is the Gorman Hills Poppy Fields. Both very beautiful places, I can guarantee you. They, they organized this event months ago. Um, but I can tell you that it's, you know, the poppies right now are going nuts. Both places are probably beautiful. So I think you could take your pick. Um, so here's how it's going to work. That Starbucks, they're going to, they're going to meet there at Burbank. Uh, it says kickstands up no later than 1030 AM and then on to lunch at the historic rock Inn. right after lunch. We head to one of two locations, depending on the wealth of the bloom and the whole state's blooming right now, folks. Not blooming idiots, but we are California, so maybe. But anyway, uh, yeah, so they're going to do that. So uh, uh, it's kind of loose, like after lunch. It doesn't specify a specific time. So I guess if you eat fast or slow, it just depends. Um, but anyway, so yeah, they're going to do that. It sounds like a fun day of writing. They plan on it being from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., which is a good day. You know, that's a good ride day. Start in the morning, end at night, full day of riding out to some good food and beautiful flower viewing in the hills. I can tell you Gorman's actually pretty beautiful. Um, Antelope Valley, I know, can be hit or miss, <laughs> but it's pretty beautiful out there depending on where you're at. And if you're by a bunch of poppies, I'm just going to assume that it's like super beautiful. But anyway, so that's going on March 26th. Other events coming up. 
straight off the creative writing page. I believe that same weekend is going to be the uh, SoCal Swap Meet again. That one is always happening at the Long Beach Memorial Stadium. I always get that wrong because I always want to say Lou Davis Stadium. I think it's Lou Davis Drive. But anyway, that's going to be happening as well. That's always on a Sunday. It's usually always the last Sunday of the month. Um, so go check that out if you don't ride to the the ye old uh, poppies. Also, MotoGP viewing uh, of the Grand Prix of Qatar. That's going to be at Dafo Winery. And if you don't know Dafo Winery, they are a winery down in Temecula that puts on some uh, just awesome awesome motorcycle events throughout the year. Uh, So also April 9th, they're going to have viewing an April 15th comedy club night. Whoops. Well, if you want to go for comedy club night, but if you want to go for MotoGP, they're going to have it um, the 26th of March and the 9th of April. The people at Dafo are actually, I think they have a, um, I believe they have a vintage racing team and they do like a motorcycle charity event there. The very first year I started the podcast, like the first week that I started it or the first week that I had my website up, they were having a a charity event there where you got to go look at their vintage motorcycle collection. So how cool is that? And who doesn't love wine? So um, even, even, you know, lots of people love, love wine. I'm not going to go into who I don't want them to get in trouble, (laughs) but whatever. I'm just such an idiot. But at any rate, I'm just uh, killing time here while I get back to my events page. How do you like that? A little BTS. Um, so anyway, uh, April 1st, the Harley-Davidson Charlotte Half Mile on the Charlotte Motor Speedway in Concord, North Carolina. Hey, North Carolina, I don't know if it was North Carolina or South Carolina, but I've been listening to some of your radio shows today, like Big John and Bo- and The Boy or something John, John and Big Boy. I don't know what it was, but it was a pretty funny show. Um, something true to my heart that's happening here in SoCal is going to be the AMA, or I'm sorry, the AMA, uh, the the RBA, Rusty Butcher Association. Their track across is going to be happening April 28th at the Milestone MX Park in Riverside, California. Please, if you're in the area, got to check that out. They still have um, a lot of stu- a lot of classes open if you want to race. So what's cooler than like keeping it hooligan? You know what I mean? I'm totally down with the hooligan movement right now, and it, I'm just so excited that groups like Hell on Wheels and now Rusty Butcher are putting on some of this cool cool stuff. Now they call it Tracker Cross because there's going to be flat track, but there's also going to be Harley Davidson motocross. Like who does that? Who does hooligan motocross? You're not going to find that from some crazy, you know, mainstream promoter. You're only going to find that in the grassroots dudes that love racing, whatever you got. So that's going to be super cool. Again, that's going to be April 28th track across. Um, so I'll keep you updated on this stuff. Cause I, I'm really looking forward to that one too. So that's just a few of the events. I wanted to go ahead and get those out of the way. I know I've been blabbing for probably half an hour now. Um, but I just really wanted to get some of that stuff out of the way before we get into this week's episode. Cause this week is what ties it all together. I feel like this week's show kind of ties all the concepts that I've been talking about with, with my passion for flat tracking, uh, my passion for, um, custom motorcycles and my disdain for Harley Davidson. 
Um, I kind of I feel like this all ties it together, and I tried to time this to come out uh, before the TT rumbled to you know the this amazing race that happened today. But thing is, open house just didn't happen. So all right, what's going to go down here is uh, I've written something, so I'm going to just jump right into this, and then I've got uh, on on the second of March, I was fortunate enough to go to the Peterson Automotive Museum. Famous museum, uh, world famous museum, one of the world's greatest automotive motorcycle uh, automotive museums, and uh, they'll be the first ones to tell you that. And I saw this uh, event, or you know, I went to a uh, reception for an exhibit that they have there, and the exhibit's going to be going, you know, the whole year. So if you have a chance to make it out, uh, it's called Harley versus Indian. It's about the iconic brands, their rivalry. And the subsequent reignition of that rivalry, now the Indian is uh, back in the motorcycle scene. And it was a great, it was super cool. And, uh, you know, I got some pics from there and I got a really good, really good um, exhibition that they gave, you know, a little seminar there in the beginning on the brands and on, you know, what they're doing, where they're going, this and that. So we'll play some of that. But I, well... I think I did a little write-up. Let me just jump into the first section here and uh, get the show started for real. In a time when motors... Hey, wait, before I uh, do this real quick, can I just tell you two things? One is that my my motorcycle, my computer right now is hotter than a $2 pistol. I had to turn on a fan. I just replaced the fan in it a couple months ago. Uh, This is getting, getting really hot. And uh, killing, killing stuff. So, put a new fan. Maybe I put it in backwards, and it's actually sucking hot air back in. But um, the other thing is that I this took me like two weeks to write. It's taken me a long time to research over a hundred years of history and uh, you know stuff that's that's relevant to this episode and the racing that went down today and all that stuff. So, I really hope this turns out as good as I wanted it to versus the amount of time that I spent doing this. Cause I stay up late at night, uh, you know, scheduling stuff to, to post out on our page and scheduling stuff to, you know, be posting throughout the day. So they don't have to actually post it throughout the day. And, uh, this took me a long time to write. So I just, I hope it turns out good. If it doesn't, I'm going to be upset. Anyway, let's get back to it. Indian Motorcycle and Harley-Davidson are by no means the first American motorcycle manufacturers. They were not even the first exporters to other markets. Their lasting imprint on the American psyche and rise to fame is due in part to a changing America, world events, and a fierce competitive spirit. Together, they became the longest-lasting icons of motorcycling's humble beginnings and harbingers of some of the brightest and darkest moments in automotive history. This episode is an attempt to showcase their rivalry using historic articles and records from both brands' own resources and sew them together to form the greatest tale in American motorcycle history. This is truly a clash of the titans. This is Reprisai. George. 
George M. Hendy took up bicycle racing at age 16. He won the United States National Amateur High Wheel Championship in 1886. Setting a new world record of 2 minutes 27.4 seconds on a half mile dirt track which he held until 1892, Hendy was America's first national cycling champion, winning 302 of the 309 races that he entered and dedicating himself to racing and traveling to bicycling and events. Hendy remained involved in bicycling even after he retired from racing first as a representative for bicycle manufacturers and later by building his own bicycles. Hendy began making Silver King bicycles at 41 through 43 Taylor Street in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1895. In 1896, the Hendy & Nelson Manufacturing Company at 478 Main Street in Springfield, Massachusetts was building safety bicycles under the names Silver King, which were bicycles for men, and Silver Queen for women. Due in no small part to his racing fame, his line of bicycles sold very well. He also sponsored a number of bicycle racers and events throughout New England, and among the racers he sponsored was Jacob de Rossier, a French-Jewish immigrant who would go on to become one of the earliest stars of motorcycle racing. Another man who had a fascination with two wheels, Oscar Hedstrom, built high-quality bicycles that were lighter and more durable than standard bikes. He rented a workshop space in Middleton, Connecticut, where he designed and cast engines from his own patterns, and he also designed a concentric carburetor. While his reputation as a bicycle builder grew, he started to build tandem bicycles with gasoline engines. These were called pacers, and they were used to split the wind for racing cyclists. The motorized pacers of that time functioned very poorly, but Hedstrom's design quickly gained a reputation as being very reliable. Around this same time, a young lad from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, had developed a passion for the new two-wheeled craze that was sweeping the nation. And in 1895, William Harley first worked at the Meiselbach Bicycle Factory at the age of 15. Another boy, William's lifelong friend and neighbor, Arthur Davidson, was also enchanted with bicycles and all things two wheels. William left the bicycle trade and joined his friend Arthur as a draftsman at the New Birth Manufacturing Company around the turn of the century. During an event at Madison Square Garden in January of 1900, Hendy became acquainted with Hedstrom. Through this involvement in bicycle racing, Hendy witnessed firsthand the excellent performance of the motorized pacing bicycle built by Oscar Hedstrom. Hendy hired Oscar to build gasoline engine-powered bicycles to pace bicycle races, and in February, Hedstrom began work on the motorized pacing bicycle at his shop in Middleton. He completed the first motorized bike in May and shipped it 38 miles to Hendy in Springfield. The machine and the other two bikes that Hedstrom built in 1901 proved to be powerful and reliable, establishing the company's reputation for outstanding performance. Later that year, the two men formed the Hendy Manufacturing Company, a partnership with Hendy as the president and general manager, and Hedstrom as the chief engineer and designer. The company's first factory was opened in downtown Springfield. Hendy and Hedstrom contracted with the Aurora Automatic Machinery Company to produce the engines. They produced Indians' single-cylinder chain-drive motorcycles, and the first retail sale took place in 1902. 
1903, Oscar Hedstrom rode one of the motorcycles to a new world speed record of 56 miles per hour. The same year, he also won an endurance race when he rode from New York City to Springfield and back. Further north, 1903 saw William S. Harley and Arthur Davidson working on their prototype. Arthur's older brother, Walter, an experienced machinist from the Milwaukee Railroad, joined the team that year with the promise of getting the ride on the first motorcycle. When he arrived, however, there was not much more than a pile of parts. Nevertheless, he stayed on to help and build and develop the machine. The final Davidson brother, William, having heard what the other boys were up to, decided to bring his skill set as a mechanic and foreman to help the others out. Later that year, they make available to the public the first production Harley-Davidson motorcycle. The bike was built to be a racer. It was based around the second engine that William Harley had designed, and that was two years in the making. The first bike never was produced. But William Harley had based the frame off a loop-type racing frame developed by the Merkel, another Milwaukee-based motorcycle manufacturer. The motorcycle used a 440cc single-cylinder engine. In 1904, Harley-Davidson built the second prototype, which still exists today in the museum. It was a loop-framed racer with the serial number 1. Also, in 1904, C.H. Lang of Chicago becomes the first Harley-Davidson dealer. And on July 4th of 1905, Harley-Davidson motorcycle wins a 15-mile race in Chicago with a time of 19 minutes and 2 seconds. 1906 was a big year for both brands. Indian motorcycle dealers George Holden of Cleveland and Louis J. Mueller of Springfield rode an Indian motorcycle from San Francisco to New York City in 31 and a half days. At the time, that was a record. That was a record time to travel that distance by motorcycle. And on top of that, they made the trip without any mechanical problems. Also in 1906, the first V-twin factory race bike was built, and Indian Motorcycle continued their impressive string of victories. A version of the racing engine was introduced in consumer models for the 1907 model year, making the 39 cubic inch or 633cc motor the first American production V-twin engine. While Indian was focused on performance and racing, Harley-Davidson spent 1906 building a newer, bigger factory, and they also expanded to six full-time employees. In 1907, Indian moved to a larger factory as well, allowing the company a chance to end the contract with the Aurora Company and to begin producing its own engines, and as a result, Indian also expanded its workforce. Harley-Davidson expanded that year as well, this time to 18 employees. They also doubled the size of the factory and began to recruit dealers. Across the pond, American T.K. Hastings rode an Indian motorcycle to victory in a 1,000-mile reliability trial in England. All of that happened in 1907. In 1908, Harley finally started making headway in the competition space. Walter Davidson scored 1,000 points at the 7th Annual Federation of American Motorcyclists Endurance and Reliability Contest. Three days after the contest, Walter sets the FAM economy record at 188.234 miles per gallon. Just a side note, the Federation, the FAM, basically the Federation of American Motorcyclists, that was the AMA before they were the AMA. From 1909 to 1912, Indian made refinements to its motorcycles. 
1909, they swapped to a loop-style frame that was designed similarly to the racing motorcycles rather than the diamond shape of the bicycle frames. And in 1910, they changed the front suspension as well as making several engine and ergonomic changes. By 1912, they introduced the swing arm rear suspension and called it the cradle spring frame. Harley-Davidson was undergoing development alongside Indian, and in 1909, Harley-Davidson Motor Company introduced its first V-twin powered motorcycle. With a displacement of 49.5 cubic inches, the bike produced 7 horsepower. In 1910, the famous Bar and Shield logo was introduced, and in 1911, the F-head was brought into production and would remain until 1929. Also, in 1911, Harley-Davidson began construction on a six-story factory in Milwaukee, and they began selling motorbikes in Japan. Those same few years saw great victories for Indians' racing efforts, and in 1911, Volney Davis rode from San Francisco to New York, establishing a new record time of 20 days, 9 hours, and 11 minutes. Indian motorcycle racers Oliver Godfrey, Charles Franklin, and A.J. Morehouse finished first, second, and third, respectively, in the Isle of Man Senior TT. And Erwin G. Cannonball Baker won the first president's race in Indianapolis. The racing successes and the reliability demonstrated by the endurance events helped Indian motorbikes establish a firm grip in the American psyche as well as in the consumer marketplace. By 1912, Hendy Manufacturing was the world's largest motorcycle manufacturer. In 1913, the company's production peaked at 32,000 units, but after Ford's Model T was introduced, a car was within the financial reach of many Americans. Motorcycles, once the most economical form of personal transportation, were destined to be marketed as sporting or leisure vehicles, and sales began to fail. Does that sound familiar? That's something that's carried out over the last 85 years. Another blow was dealt to Indian motorcycles that year as the chief engineer, designer, and co-founder Oscar Hedstrom retired on March 1st. Meanwhile, on Juno Avenue in Milwaukee, 1913 saw the establishment of Harley-Davidson's racing department. In 1914, a few months later, Harley-Davidson would formally enter racing. Harley-Davidson would also unveil a two- and three-speed rear-drive hub in 1914 and 1915, respectively. As far as Indian goes, May 14, 1914 was a special day. Cannonball Baker rode from San Diego to the East Coast, breaking Volney Davis's previous effort with a new record time of 11 days, 12 hours, and 10 minutes. The next year, racing on a motorcycle with an early experimental version of a side valve engine, Baker set the fastest time in a three-flag run from Canada to Mexico via California, which he completed in three and a half days. On June 28, 1914, halfway around the globe, a Yugoslav nationalist Serb named Gavrilo Princip assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand of Austria in Sarajevo. This touched off a war in Europe. Two years later, Hendy stepped down as general manager, but stayed on a company president. A year prior to George's departure that saw new innovations such as electric lights and the first electric start ever on a motorcycle. In 1916, the company unveiled one of its most legendary engines, the Power Plus, 
It was a 1,000cc, 42-degree V-twin flathead with side valves. More powerful than its predecessors, it was capable of rocketing certain models to a top speed of 60 miles per hour. They also introduced a two-stroke single called the Featherweight, which only lasted one year in the lineup. 1916 was also the year that George Hendy, former bicycle racer and manufacturer, co-founder of Indian Motorcycle Company, and one of the fathers of American motorcycle racing, resigned as company president. He gave up the hustle and bustle of running a large business for a quiet life on a farm. 1917. That was the year that the United States entered World War I. A war spawned in Sarajevo by the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria a few years prior, and as with both and as with both world wars, most industries ramped down public operations in an effort to ramp up war support. Indian Motorcycle and Harley Davidson both supplied the U.S. with supplies and vehicles. And according to Indian Motorcycles' website, the company provided the U.S. military with nearly 50,000 motorcycles from 1917 to 1919, most of them based on the Indian Power Plus model. While Harley-Davidson's website doesn't supply numbers, it states that roughly one-third of all Harley-Davidson motorcycles produced is sold to the U.S. military. Harley-Davidson also trained military mechanics and developed a school that would later become the Service School. During the war efforts, it was called the Quartermaster School. They also began selling bicycles through their dealer network, perhaps to, to provide civilians with an affordable way to commute on two wheels while their motorcycles will be, were being focused on the war. The Harley-Davidson models were based on the J-Series, with the 61-cubic-inch F-head motor producing 15 horsepower. Indian used the Power Plus Big Twin, which was 61 cubic inch side valve motor producing 18 horsepower. Both Harley-Davidson and Indian employed hand shifters and gas headlights in place of electric ones for simplicity's sake. The motorcycles were used extensively as ambulances, supply vehicles, motor mobile infantry, which was a motorcycle fitted with machine gun, and as convoy leads. A famous picture of the first American to ride a Harley-Davidson into Germany is also cited as being erroneous on RideVintage.com. The article on War Machine states that Corporal Holes was actually captured the day before the armistice was signed and was, was released immediately afterward. The photo of him is actually him leaving Germany to return to his troop, but the handwritten note on the photo, probably from that era, just shows how hard accurately documenting the world, uh, a world war can be. And I believe, you know, the common practice back then was to handwrite on the photos what was happening, and somebody just probably looked at it, didn't know the whole deal, and wrote it on there. But it's in the Harley-Davidson Museum, and it's cited even on their company's timeline as him entering Germany when he, he was actually leaving Germany. Uh, at any rate, after World War I and before the Great Depression, motorcycling flourished in the U.S. Harley-Davidson and Indian were only a duo of many brands, almost a hundred, I believe, which sprang up in the American motorcycling's golden age. In 1919, Harley-Davidson introduced a 37-cubic-inch opposed-twin sport model, and by 1920, they are the largest manufacturer worldwide. They have a dealer network of over 2,000 strong, and they are available in 67 countries. 
Over the next five years, Indian will release the Scout, the Standard, the Indian Chief, and the Big Chief, but they didn't export units or set up the dealer network overseas in the same way that Harley-Davidson had. And in 1925, tariffs basically stopped Indian Motorcycle Company from exporting to Great Britain altogether. Despite the lack of international movement, Indian purchased Ace Motor Corporation in 1927 and released the Indian Ace based on the Ace Inline 4. The lineup now featured a single, a twin, and inline four-cylinder engines. Harley-Davidson was enjoying success in the marketplace and on the racetrack while Indian tried to stay viable without its original founders in place to head the company in the right direction. In 1920 alone, Red Pankhurst broke 23 speed records on a Harley-Davidson. The team's mascot, a hog, also began to get carried around on victory laps, and people began to associate Harley with the hog, thus the hog association that we know today. In 1928, Joe Petrali started racing for Harley-Davidson, and he would become one of their most successful factory riders. Smoke and Joe, as they called him, went on to win every single national dirt track champion race in 1935 alone. He would later become the first man in history of dirt track to win all the races in a series on one motorcycle brand. He continued an amazing career capturing five consecutive national championship titles from 1932 to 1936, racing on Harley-Davidson and Excelsior motorcycles. Just before the 1920s closeout, Harley-Davidson released their first single-cylinder motor since 1918, and they unveiled a flathead in 1929. Indian drops a single from their lineup, and they purchased the Hartford Outboard Motor Company that year. And they also produced several non-motorcycle-related products, but the side ventures didn't end up helping the company at all financially. In fact, all these little side ventures that they made might have undercut the company's focus and helped further their downward spiral. Then in the summer of 1929, the American economy entered a recession. and By autumn, the stock market had risen while futures seemed bleak. The stock bubble burst on October 24th, which became known as Black Thursday. And five days later on Black Tuesday, the rest of the cards began to fall around the stock market. One year later, in the fall of 1930, which is a painfully apropos time of year for the fall of the system to occur, they saw the first of four runs on banking establishments. It was a bad time for everybody, but the motorcycle industry suffered greatly. In 1930, E. DuPont of the DuPont Car Company bought a large share of Indian motorcycle stock and ousted the existing management team. He placed members of the DuPont Car Company in their place, and this was the prelude of the Indian Motorcycle Company's troubles with constantly changing ownership and a problem that would plague them for over half a century. Harley-Davidson, which was still run by the same team for the past 25 years, continues to win dirt track and endless endurance races. By 1931, Indian Motorcycle and Harley-Davidson are the only remaining motorcycle companies in America, and it would remain that way until 1953. I am not sure of the total amount of motorcycle companies that were around, but I know it was somewhere between 80 and 100 different American motorcycle companies in the Golden Age. The Great Depression really wiped out a lot of them, and Harley and Indian 
I believe part of their rivalry was due to the fact that they were the only remaining ones during this great time when the American psyche is getting rebuilt and Americans are establishing a new identity after a tragic, tragic event like the Great Depression. For the next few years, America would drudge through the decade-long Depression and consequent economic challenges made sales and development hard for both manufacturers. Harley-Davidson continued its winning streak in the racing world, and Indian Motorcycle continued to add, drop, and reconfigure motors and models in an effort to find a formula that worked. In 1935, Harley-Davidson licensed blueprints, tools, machines, etc. to the Sankyo Company of Japan. Motorcycles were nothing new in Japan, and even American ones. The Jumanji Trading Company had imported the 1894 Hildebrand and Wolfmuller motorrod to Japan in 1896, and in 1901, the Thomas Autobuy appeared, followed possibly in 1902 by a California and Orient Aster brand motorcycles. Two Mitchells made by the Mitchell Lewis Motor Company in Racine, Wisconsin, were imported in 1903. And Narazzo Shimizu designed, built, and sold the first NS, which was a 100% Japanese-made motorcycle in 1909. You can see that many American motorcycles, including Harley in 1911, were imported to Japan early on. But now, three and a half decades later, Harley-Davidson was actually licensing their bikes to manufacturers overseas. Out of this agreement, the Rikuo motorcycle was born. Maybe Rikuo? During the remainder of the Great Depression, Indian Motorcycle and Harley-Davidson companies continued to race and develop new motors, much as they had throughout the decade-long economic siege. Notable race victories include Indian rider Ed Kretz's 1937 win of the inaugural Daytona 200, a race on the shores and highway of the historic beach community. Harley-Davidson would take the 1939 and 1940 200 trophies with Ben Campanile and Babe Tancred, respectively. The Jack Pine Gypsies started the Black Hills Classic Rally in 1938, and a local Indian dealer, Pappy Hoyle, helped to spur on the annual event, which evolved into what we know today as the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. At the end of the 1930s, it appeared to be the end of the light of the tunnel, but it was actually more like the light at the end of the rifle barrel. Just as America was breaking the surface of the dark waters of the Great Depression, the world was plunged headfirst into World War II. According to Indian Motorcycles timeline, nearly half of the 10,431 units that they made in 1939 were shipped to the French Uh, during the early onset of the war, and they supplied the U.S. and all of its allies with motorcycles for the war with very few reserved for civilian use. Harley-Davidson did much the same thing, surrendering almost all their motorcycles to the war effort and reestablishing the quartermaster school for training mechanics in the military. After the war, neither brand wasted time getting back to production for profit. Indian hit a slight rough patch, however, being sold by the DuPont brothers to R. Rogers, and Rogers bought Indian and Torque Manufacturing Company. A former engineer worked at Torque, and Rogers wanted to steer the company in a certain direction. Harley-Davidson claimed that the servicemen who were introduced to Harleys during the war couldn't forget them once they got home. 
1946 to 1948, Rogers toured the country to showcase the sporty new 440cc Scout and the 220cc Single in the Indian Arrow. He was replaced as president in 1950 by John Brockhouse. That same year, Arthur Davidson, the last remaining of the founding four, passes away. Indian Motorcycle had gone through a number of ownership and leadership changes already in the 50 years, while all the Harley-Davidson founders worked for the company until their deaths. And as we know, their uh, progeny has also worked there as well, truly keeping Harley-Davidson sort of a family business over the last 110 plus years of their operations. Harley-Davidson dominated the dirt tracks for the remainder of the 40s, with Jimmy Chan taking three consecutive AMA GNC titles. Indian won several of the Springfield Miles with Hill and Tooman in the seat, and they dominated on road courses as well uh, until Indian's closure in 1953. Brockhouse Engineering bought the rights to Indian and sold rebadged Royal Enfields under the iconic banner, but Harley-Davidson would be the sole American motorcycle manufacturer for the next 46 years. From 1950 on, it seemed that Harley-Davidson was synonymous with winning as they took Grand National Championship after championship. And in fact, beginning in 1954, a year after Indian closed, they would take the GNC title for eight consecutive years despite the efforts of Triumph, BSA, and various other motorcycle brands. They would also start to rack up wins at the Daytona 200 on their new KR models. In 1957, the Sportster was born, and fans immediately embraced its styling. 1960 saw the Topper Scooter, and this year was also the birth of the Ermaki Harley-Davidson after they bought half of the Italian firm. The Sprint was also a product of the joint adventure, and it debuted in 1961. The 1960 Daytona 200 featured all Harley-Davidson 750KRs in all top four finishing positions. Roger Riemann won the 1961 200 on a KR, and that year the race had moved from the beach to the newly finished Daytona International Speedway, and it used part of the infield and part of the banked oval. The bikes started to use full fairing since the bumpy sand was no longer a factor in the race. Don Burnett on a Triumph won the 1962 event, and he was the first New Englander to win the Daytona 200 since Babe Tancred in 1940, but Harley-Davidson took it right back immediately and would hold on to it for the next few years. The winners, all on 750KRs, were as follows. 1963, Ralph White. 1964 and 65, Roger Riemann. 1966 and 67, Buddy Elmore and Gary Nixon on Triumphs. 1968 and 69, Cal Rayborn on a 750KR, fully fared what you, what you think of as a cafe bike nowadays. It wasn't only the 200 that Harley dominated, though. In 1965, George Reeder, he shattered the speed record for Class A and Class C runs, averaging 177 miles per hour in a streamliner powered by a 250cc Sprint CR racing engine. Harley-Davidson was doing great. Throughout the 60s, Indian Motorcycle changed hands a couple of times, but nothing real happened with the brand. The only substantial news came in 1967 when a scrappy Kiwi named Burt Monroe set a speed record on a bike that started out as a 1920 600cc Scout. 
The New Zealander made history setting a world speed record of 184.087 miles per hour. That's the corrected number as of 2014 on the Bonneville Salt Flats. Burt Monroe was highly underfinanced, unsupported, and 68 years old when he set the record, which still stands according to uh, Indian's timeline. Because Monroe was a man of modest means, he would often make parts and tools himself since he could not afford to have them professionally built. Uh, For example, he would cast parts in old tins, make his own barrels, pistons, flywheels, so on and so forth. And for his micrometer, he used an old spoke. The end of the 60s was the end of an era. The Vietnam War, the Summer of Love, and rock and roll were in full swing. Harley-Davidson would merge with the American Machine and Foundry Company in 1969, marking what some consider a very dark spot in the motor company's history. Mert Lawwill would take the GNC title that year by conquering dirt tracks and road courses aboard a 750. The motor company and the nation were facing some changes that would reshape the next decade and perhaps the next half century. Some of the press was not so great either, like the Hells Angels Altamont incident. That's another story for a whole nother time, and the Hells Angels and Harley Davidsons and the whole history of World War II and motorcycle clubs. That's a whole different story. From 1970 to 77, the Indian name was used to sell small displacement bikes from Taiwan and a few Italian mini bikes. Indian's name would lie dormant for over 20 years after the operation ceased in 1977. Harley, on the other hand, would continue to make waves. The Daytona 200 had run 28 times between 1937 and 69, skipping the years occupied by World War II, but Harley-Davidson had managed to grab 16 victories in those 28 efforts. That was more than any other brand at the time. And in second place was, you guessed it, Norton, with five wins. Oh, you thought I was going to say someone else? Well, Indian and Triumph shared three victories apiece, and Bobby Hill was the lone BSA victor in 1954. After Cal Rayborn's victory in 1969, though, Harley-Davidson would never again win a Daytona 200 title. Yamaha went on to dominate the 70s and much of the 80s, too. The winners after 1970 read like a Japanese phone book. And aside from Dick Mann's 1971 win on a BSA and Jason DeSalvo's 2011 checkered flag aboard a Ducati, the writing was on the wall. It was to be a totally Japanese-dominated event for the next 37 years. Something else happened, though, in 1970 that made that all right. The XR750 was born. That year, Cal Rayborn took a single-engine Sportster-powered streamliner to Bonneville, and he broke another speed record with an average of just over 265 miles per hour. You heard me. A single Sportster-powered streamline taken over 265 miles per hour. The XR was an overhead valve bike and a much-needed upgrade to stay competitive in the racing against the new rules. There was no longer a limit of 500 cc's on overhead valve bikes, so Harley-Davidson's side valve KR750s had lost their advantage. The XR750 was quickly cobbled together to provide a solution, but in 1972 it was superseded by the superior alloy XR750. How superior? 
Well, let's just say that Harley-Davidson only officially switched to the XG750 in 2017, so nearly four decades of superior performance from that motor. The 1970s also saw the rise of the Cruiser. Had Indian been around to keep Harley-Davidson engaged in the track, things might have been different, but for now, customers wanted luxury, and the brand's bikes were reflecting that, and the Cruiser was born. Just before we step into the next decade, something else significant, or I guess not, happened in 1979. Eric Buell, fresh from getting his engineering degree from the University of Pittsburgh, came to Milwaukee for an interview and, quote, beat my way in the door, as he puts it. In 1980, Harley-Davidson debuted its FLT, which looked more like a Honda Goldwing than the nostalgic-styled or batwing-fairinged clad cruisers that are normally associated with the motor company, and the Kevlar belt also replaced the chain. 1980, not just for disco and cocaine. 1981 was a good year for Harley-Davidson as Scott Parker begins a flat track racing for the factory team on the AMA circuit and he'll become the most successful racer in Harley-Davidson's history, accumulating 93 career victories and winning nine Grand National Championship titles in a 10-year period. Executives at the company also sign a letter of intent to purchase it back from AMF. Harley-Davidson can step out from the shadows and cast the yoke aside. The company had struggled for a few years, and it was not certain whether it would last through the 80s. Harley-Davidson continued to road race with mixed success while dominating on dirt track. The brand's racing efforts were on point, but the consumer side of the company was facing stiff competition and had a poor reputation under AMF's ownership. In 1983, the company petitioned the International Trade Commission to issue a five-year tariff on motorcycles over 700 cc's or larger. They alleged that the tariff relief measures would protect them from Japanese dumping, which is stockpiling large inventories of unsold motorcycles in the USA. In the mid-1980s, the Softail debuts, and Harley-Davidson does what they're famous for now, which is redesigning a more efficient engine and applying it to the latest model lineup to create, quote, new models. The brand is also struggling to stay alive, and despite dirt track domination, the race team begins to worry about cuts. They think they're going to get the axe year after year. To make matters worse, they needed a more powerful bike to compete in World Superbike. Despite a rough patch in 1987, Harley-Davidson asks the International Trade Commission to end the five-year tariff early because they were gaining confidence in their products, and so was the public. The public. You hear me? The next year, the 1200cc Sportster was introduced, and Harley-Davidson celebrated its 85th anniversary. Scott Parker won his first of nine GNCC titles, and development of the VR1000 was begun. The 1980s came in like a lion and out like a lamb for Harley-Davidson. I guess that could be good or bad if you switch the analogy to the stock market symbolic bear and the bull. And at any rate, things seemed to be getting back on track and the motor company was turning things around. So, let's talk a little bit about this Eric Buell fella. Eric Buell was a racer through and through and had left Harley-Davidson in 1983 to pursue his own racing endeavor. He had been racing a Barton since the early 1980s, and in 1982, Barton was shutting down. Buell was given the option to purchase the entire stock of spare engines and parts, all drawings, and the right to produce and sell the engine. Buell's part and power... He did so, by the way. 
should throw that in there. Buell's Barton-powered machines were called RWs for Road Warrior, and they were very competitive 750s, and Buell would begin to offer them in late 1984. Unfortunately, the AMA announced that Superbikes would replace the Formula One as the premier road racing class, and this meant that all of his work was in vain. He used his connections at Harley-Davidson to get his hands on unused XR1000 racing engines. His new bike would be called the RR1000. He made 50 RR1000s before running out of XR motors. Seeing the new 1200 Sportster engines in 1988, Buell began using them to power his sport bikes. The RS1200 and RR1200 were introduced in 1989. Buell was smuggled onto a cruise ship at the annual dealer meeting back in 1987, which is where he wheeled and dealed with the CEO of the company. Dealers met with Buell privately and signed on to his crazy idea. And in 1993, Harley-Davidson officially bought a 51% interest in the Buell Motorcycle Company. So that's how he began selling his motorcycles to dealers only, not through the company. Uh, And once they caught on, 1993 was the year where Harley-Davidson took the hook, line, and sinker. The next year, Harley-Davidson entered Superbike, racing with the VR1000, which had been in development for five years. So now you have Buell racing his bikes and Harley with their own factory Superbike. The 1990s would be a time of expansion and growth for Harley-Davidson, just like it had been 80 years prior. New factories and production lines were built or expanded, anniversaries were had, and the Harley-Davidson branding that dentist lawyers and as well as outlaw bikers can align with begins to take shape. 1998 was the company's 95th anniversary, as well as the year that an assembly facility opens in Manaus, Brazil. According to Harley-Davidson's website, this is also the year that they bought 100% of the Buell Motorcycle Company. Other sources have cited 2003 as the year that, that, uh, that they took full control. So somewhere between 2000 and 2003. Oh, I'm sorry. Somewhere between 98 and 2003. That's a big discrepancy there. 1998 is a significant year for another reason as well, though. Indian Motorcycle Company of America, which was a nine-company community effort, tries to get Indian off the ground again for the first time since 1977. This time, they opened a facility in Gilroy, California, and they used SNS motors to power the Chiefs, Scout, and Spirit models. They are seen as little more than nostalgic ass candy, and the company only lasts a few years. During the 1990s, Dirt Track's popularity really began to wane, and it actually might have started a little bit earlier uh, when the sport bike making an appearance in the mid-1980s. Admittedly, even Harley-Davidson was trying to develop a superbike platform at the time, and motocross was also growing by leaps and bounds, and a new thing called extreme sports was slowly building an underground following. Even NASCAR's popularity began a downturn, and it seemed as though the general public was not interested in races on circles. Harley-Davidson was still very dominant in the sport, however, but they were focusing their efforts squarely on development and expansion of the brand, both physically and as an industry presence. Custom bike shows and rallies started to gain popularity and grow as well, leading the company's marketing and sales strategies, more so than the win-on-Sunday, sell-on-Monday principle that had benefited them in the decades prior. 
Despite disconnecting from their racing heritage on the showroom floor, Harley-Davidson had almost single-handedly dominated the sport of flat track, except for a brief run by Honda in the mid-1980s. So, after emerging from their terrible AMF overlords, they really did have to focus more on what the public wanted. If you want to sell something, you have to offer something that people want to buy, right? So it kind of makes sense that this is like a time when their licensing is ramping up and all of their brand identity really, they start to leverage that in the marketplace rather than just trying to sell motorcycles because they're cool and people win races on them. On Harley-Davidson's own official timeline, Buell motorcycles make up the headlines and high points of the early 2000s. This seems a little ironic since the Harley faithful appear to have great disdain for the offshoot mark and other aberration to the brand purist is also released in 2002 which is the v-rod two things that harley purists really don't like buell and the v-rod because it was designed by porsche and it's water-cooled Nonetheless, in 2006, fuel injection becomes standard on most of the models and it trickles over the next year, with ABS following in 2008. Custom bike shows again taking off on television and, as you can see, it reflected in showrooms and streets across the country. Jesse James and Arlen Ness are practically household names, not to mention the outrageous world biker build-offs that begin to take the scene by storm. Harley-Davidson tries to cash in on the craze with the Rocker. Do you guys remember the Rocker and the Rocker C? In 2006 and 2007, see phenomenal growth in the motorcycle industry. People with a credit score of 236 can buy a mansion and two new motorcycles. Gas prices also hit an all-time high as well, leading up to even better-than-expected sales for motorcycles and scooters. In 2008, the bleep hits the fan as global economic crisis drops the floor out from Americans and whatever countries bought their packaged debt. Buell gets canned by Harley-Davidson in 2009, and it's the end for the engineer's dreams. We can, we can pretty much say that he never, ever came back. Maybe never even got started. Despite being a horrible time to make a comeback, a UK private equity firm uh, formed Stelican Limited purchases the Indian motorcycle company and gives it a go. Their run lasts all the way from 2008 until 2011, when Polaris buys the brand from them. Indian unveils their new lineup in Daytona Bike Week in 2013. The Thunderstroke 111 fired up and proved to be a crowd pleaser. Immediately, Harley-Davidson began to work on a new motor, and since there is generally a five-year lead time, this meant that they would not have a competitive rival for a couple of years. The Project Rushmore enhancements were already being implemented as well. 2016, not to be outdone by Indians 106 and 111 cubic inch motors, Harley-Davidson unveils its 107 and 114 monsters, delivering almost 100 horsepower out of the 1868cc motor. Almost 100 horses out of that baby. 2017 will see the racing rivalry that existed between Harley-Davidson and Indian Motorcycle rekindle for the first time in this century. It's an exciting time to see a staggering giant and an old pioneer come face to face after such a long hiatus.
Alongside the growing rivalry has been the growth of flat track once again, now even more popular than ever as builders, customizers, and even OEMs embrace the styling and growing aesthetics of the hooligan racers and street trackers. It has yet to be seen if Indian Motorcycle Company will hold on long enough to impact Harley-Davidson, but this time it feels real as Polaris has unmistakably chosen to support the name and the heritage with which Indian was once synonymous. The rise of a former titan is nowhere more evident than the tracks where the brand rivalry began so long ago. For the 2017 season, Harley-Davidson and Indian Motorcycles are competing fiercely for sponsorship deals and rider contracts, and Indian has poached away the top three riders in the sport of flat track. Harley-Davidson has responded by assembling their own three-man team of two-wheeled gladiators, and both brands are sponsoring several races this season. The introduction of an old nemesis has re-engaged Harley-Davidson in an area that they were taking for granted. In many ways, they've responded by upping their game, which is beneficial for consumers of the brand and race fans alike. Without any interjection into the market and immediately developing a bike for racing, it may have been more of the same for both companies. One thing is certain, as Harley-Davidson has slipped and had several rough patches over the last couple of years, this may be Indian's chance to strike a profound blow to their great rival. This may be Indian's chance for retribution, for revenge, for reprisal. All right. So, hey, not to get crazy or anything on this Harley and Indian rivalry, but after watching the flat track races tonight at Daytona, I... Am I just am pumped, and uh, I hope this you know I hope it does take off. Harley Davidson, I have actually a newfound respect for them after having done all this research and reading about you know their longevity and you know their beginnings as well. And um, I got a chance, like I said earlier, I got a chance to go to the Peterson and listen to some speakers present the history of Harley versus Indian why the rivalry is important and basically uh, I'll let them speak for themselves, but just a heads up, they, it was uh, Mark Hoyer who is editor for cycle world and Richard Varner, who is the V and crave. And if you don't know who crave is, they're the people that run moto America and have had pulled the American road racing out of its dark overlords. Um, There's also, Nevin Pontius, and if you've never heard such a hipster name in your life, that's because he is like a spokesman for Deus, Ex Machina. And the other guy is Don MD. Don MD, of course, being a very uh, successful racer. And so we're going to go in here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed you some of the uh, questions and topics from that show. And I recorded some sound snippets. And we'll get to hear firsthand from these industry professionals what is the significance of the Harley versus Indian rivalry. So the first topic of the seminar or of the exhibition was to talk about Harley's rivalry with Indian. What was Harley and Indian's rivalry? 
So why are we here? Tonight we are celebrating one of the greatest rivalries in motorcycling. A nearly religious war that was waged in dealerships, on the road and on the racetracks of America for the dawn of motorcycling in this country. It's Harley Davidson versus Indian. These motorcycles are the, the soul of American motorcycling. Like that silhouette is what motorcycling means to almost everybody in the world. In terms of heavyweight motorcycles, they sell the most. But the most evocative products that have two wheels. Um, in the Harley Davidson and Union uh, Wars, of course, we know who won, right? Harley Davidson won, right? Um, Harley sells something like 250,000 units a year. That's what they'll probably do this year. They've sold as many as 350 to 400,000. Um, they've been a foundation of the industry and the engine of the industry since 1903, pretty much. I mean, they don't get enough credit for bringing so many people into the market that they have. Um, 60,000 sportsters a year since 1996-97. Like, that's 60,000 bikes is more than Ducati did in this entire year. And for Indian, beautifully revived by Polaris, you're still looking, they would be happy to get a tenth of that. They would be happy if they get 25,000 units. That being said, Indian is truly back. So there you have it. And I know that Harley Davidson has had some trouble recently. They've had, I mean, you know, they've gone through the AMF years. It hasn't been without their struggles, but truly what he said isn't a lie. Harley Davidson did win. They've been continuously open with family members at the helm um, for, you know, 110 plus years. Uh, so on that, uh, note, let's move on to the next question or the next topic rather, which is hooligan racing and hooligan racing being uh, almost single-handedly responsible for the revival of flat track and that being uh, one of the main reasons why Indian is making a huge comeback. Another part of the revival, we couldn't talk about flat track, couldn't talk about Harley and Indian without talking about hooligan racing which is really, we feel, a path for young people into the sport. It's a little bit of Class C in the sense that it's, you know, when Class C racing, they're very rigid about the rules, but what that was doing at the time, way back in the day, was to make the sport accessible, and that's really what they're trying to do with the racing, and it's now, you know, a nationally sponsored series by Indian. Harley's investing, we've got racers here, I saw Cameron Brewer from Roma Sands Design. Uh, there's a fellow named Wiggins here who's racing a Harley, as people are like really getting what we're seeing is a, a rebirth of the enthusiasm for just simple go get it dirt track racing which wouldn't exist without these brands american flat track racing would not exist without either one of these brands that also is 100 percent true american flat track racing would not exist mostly for harley davidson keeping it alive uh even through the tumultuous years even when they were uh, not world war one but during the great uh, depression during all the recessions that have happened through the EPA legislation of the 70s and not only that but he spoke about racers a couple of racers being there a guy named Wiggins uh, and Cameron Brewer so Cameron Brewer was there Wiggins was there. Uh, also, Scott Jones from Noise Cycles was there. I ran into Sean Wardado of Suicide Machine. Uh, there was, and you know, they were just the guys that I saw. There was a bunch of people there. I think even the owner of Garage Company popped in at one point, and 
you know, go Takamini might have been there too. There was there was a bunch of people out there in the crowd that weren't acknowledged that are weren't acknowledged at the uh, exhibition opening there that are really have played a huge part in the hooligan flat track scene and getting it back online, getting these two companies involved and in fact helping to ignite this rivalry again. As a quick shout out to Scott Jones, he drove from Long Beach area from you know somewhere down in that area all the way up to the one show to flat track up there and then drove all the way from the one show across the country to mama tried show and then drove from mama tried all the way back to uh, this harley davidson event and i believe now he's driving all the way across to the concrete uh clash on the concrete in daytona so here we have you know, a a local builder that, you know, is driving himself to all these events and racing in them. And, you know, Rusty Butcher guys did sort of the same in Milwaukee for Mama Tried. It's just, it's awesome what these guys are doing. And they're not doing it with any factory backing. They're just doing it because they just love to be hooligans and take it back to where it all started. Buddies having fun in a circle. Uh, that might have came out a little bit wrong. So I'm only going to cover a couple more uh, because otherwise it'll be like a two hour long show and I don't want to do that. But the next topic of, of conversation was how did Indians survive all these years, all these ownership changes? How did the brand survive? How is it coming back right now to challenge Harley from the grave, literally? So foremost, you know, uh, Harley Davidson, or excuse me, Indian was purchased by Polaris in uh, about 2010-2011 and that brand had been dragged through the mud like from closed in 1953 and then it was sold and abused, used and beat down and I've tested products by the Gilroy company and others that were questionable. But the brand strength has never died. And that's the thing. So the, the question I think to Nevin here is, what do you think of the, what, what's, what is causing the brand strength to survive and thrive and to be so powerful that Polaris buys the brand, starts building motorcycles, and is so successful that they decide to close their other brand, Victory, which they tried to grow for 18 years. So that's a, that's a question. What's the brand strength here like? Indeed started on so was, their founders were bicyclists that were competitive bike racing and uh, I think in the early part of the century when Indian was just coming as a brand, they were setting every record and, and nothing had been really done before and they were the first motorcycle brand that was doing all the speed records, endurance, setting the endurance records. So. And, yeah, and then you have, you know, I think you added that, the evocative style, right, like a chief, like that is burned into the, you know, the, the design of the chief. So you have all this performance background and then you, have, you followed it with gorgeous motorcycles that were very distinct in style. And, uh, I can just add, I think uh, from the time the Indian factory ceased production, right in there, is Ever since, even though all those machines and some of the ones you tested didn't work that good, it all came from people just saying, we can't let this thing die. 
we have to keep the Indians going and people tried and they tried to get the licenses figured out, they tried to figure out what Indians put in and they didn't really do it that well, but yet the, the, the public was so saying, we we want to keep Indian alive and we keep us going. There's all these different efforts went on and on through the forties, fifties, and sixties. And seventies and eighties and all the way until 2011 when Polaris bought them. Yeah, um, and if you couldn't tell that Nevin guy, doesn't he He just sounds too well-dressed, doesn't he? He was very well-groomed. The next question or topic, are the brands focusing on image or are they focusing on technology? I, I, I think there's a couple of things there. That, that as, you, as you kind of look through uh, post-war, that the uh, you had a lot of returning service, you um, had a lot of issues with uh, the perception of motorcycling and motorcycles and how that changed, but it still stayed an edgy, an edgy thing. Uh, and I think the Carly did a great job because I, I'm here. how do you the money on technology and engineering? How do you expand the brand? And it was the first real stepping out to non-endemic. I mean, it's it much about a lifestyle than anything else. That carried the company. Got them through AMF and got them through a few other things, but but it, the brand and the lifestyle carried the company. And so they, you can invest in technology, you can invest in brand if you if you don't have experience, right? So I think what really happened here was initially they did that, but as it, as it's continued on, uh, the needs to keep up with performance have changed that to a certain extent. And as you mentioned to me earlier, I think it's very true that the need to comply with emissions and with the uh, safety standards and everything that goes with that, the engineer now is, is done more or less to, to be able to still maintain the brand and the look and still comply at the same time. So the technology's not into keeping it the brand as opposed to anything. I'd agree with you, Richard, and I think uh, Part of the brand is the history of it and the heritage. And if you you can make technological advances to make a bike perform more reliably and perform better, but if you if you make too much of a jump, you actually lose some of your your core customers because it's, it's not nostalgic enough. I think that's part of why people want it, and I think it has to be a little bit rougher. I'd say from my experience of testing. Uh, Harley's and Indians since 1994 are pretty much written every, every new bike from all manufacturers. They're really engineering to maintain the silhouette. Um, there's a ton of engineering that goes into making the riding experience. Like they're really engineering the riding experience. They're using technology. Like Richard says to comply with noise and emissions, particularly when they're doing like Harley's and Milwaukee the, the new region that they built. They really um, they work so hard on mechanical noise to reduce mechanical noise because that's the, you have 100, you know, if you have 100 units of sound, you want only, what do you call it, your phone is happy sounds, like good sounds to reach the rider. So you have to work super hard to deaden down everything else that you don't want to hear, and that lets you make more noise you do want to hear. And that's a big part of the engineering process that they're going through, so. Stuff you don't think about when you think about how crummy and what a peg a cruiser is, is they're designing it to be like that. And they have to do jump through a whole bunch of hoops to make it like that and to get the right experience for the riders. And 
I start to gain a little bit of respect from an engineering and planning standpoint and all that stuff. You know, even if you don't like the necessary output of all that engineering and stuff, you still got to, you know, a lot goes into it. A lot goes into it. All right, the next topic. We're going to get into racing and why racing is important and what they get from racing. And I'm going to cut out the rest because we won't be able to fit it all in here. But let's talk about racing. Well, I think the, uh, the one thing about flat track racing is that it's, it's a sport that we created. It was, it was created in America. You know, road racing was done in a lot of different places and trials and, you know, like motocross. And then motocrossers came over here and they brought the sport to us. We, we created flat track racing and, you know, and it's oh, yeah, yeah. of those are, yeah. You know, and, and, and then the tracks is, is the aggregate we did at ASCAP. Uh, here in the Southern California, but also, you know, all those fairground tracks around the, around the country, everything, and just, uh, it took hold right off uh, the bat. So, uh, you know, and actually, it's funny, there are some other countries where a little bit of that, but they try to do a little bit of it in England, but uh, I don't think they really get it like we uh, like we have, and, the, the, you know, get people like Cedric Sandy and Sunny and others that are, that are here. We, uh, we've all, I, I spent my days and nights at, at Ascot, you know, and it just, uh, especially the years when we did it without brakes. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, you, you, had, you had to learn how to run about, you know, about how to ride a motorcycle real quick, or uh, <laughs> you're going to be around for a You know, the other thing, too, is every great motorcycle racer that we've had, uh, that said, well, especially in the world stage, somebody, you know, we went back to all the guys that came off, they all came off the dirt. They all came off flat track. Includes car drivers, too. So Joe Leonard, you know, Mario Andretti, Barnelli, uh, uh, all the great racers that the United States have put forth in the world stage have done well, not only here, but across the world. Wayne Rainey, of course, and, and Kenny, and, and uh, Sam, uh, everyone came off the dirt. And I think that's something that, that's unique to the Americans and, and unique to that style of racing, too. Well, definitely it was a different kind of riding, Doug, because in the end, in, in our era, you had to actually learn how to turn the, the bike with the rear wheel. You know, you, you know, get it into a turn and use the rear wheel to, to make it turn the corner. Now, I think traction control and some things have kind of taken away because some of the riders haven't don't learn it anymore in road racing. But the, but the dirt track, like you said, even when Kenny and especially Wayne, uh, Rainey and uh, Eddie Lawson, they, when they got over to Europe and everything, those were the years where those bikes were really set up to spin the rear wheel. And it was it was perfect for those guys. But uh, again, it, we created it and then we took it worldwide to, uh, to make it pay off in road racing. And I think it's worthy to say that Indian was the first one that had a, kind of a factory rider that sent him, actually tested the bikes on uh, dirt track. And well, at that time it was probably more of a board track, but it was a proving ground. You, you win races and you sell bikes. So it's, yeah, all the hard at that time, Island NTT, all the British brands, you went, to, you went to race so that you could prove that your motorcycle was fantastic. And, uh, in the old U.S. of A., we did it Duke boy style. You uh, took it to a dirt track. So, yeah, that uh, he, he didn't mention Nikki Hayden, and I believe the Boston brothers also uh, all started on dirt. If you watched the TT this uh, Thursday, you saw uh, Danny Eslick. And, uh, you know, I've seen in the past at the uh, Ivy League events, Josh Hayes and, and other uh, AMA road racers uh, fully going crazy and truly road racing um, learning to get the bike under control. We see it now with Mark Marquez and, and a bunch of other guys getting into the super prestigio stuff. So it, it really does add a lot of uh, dynamic uh, to your style 
and a lot it helps you learn control. So what are they getting from racing now? We're going to end on that. And uh, so here's that segment. So talking about flat track, um, what does flat track racing do for brands currently? You know, uh, Indian invested in a pure race bike that spent millions of dollars to bring out the FTR 750. Harley is investing quite a bit of money in street-related products related to the street something that they actually sell for DR. Um, what do we think that Harley Davidson and Indian are getting from flat track and what's serving you, Richard? Well, the way I look at it is it's sort of a rising tide floats all boats. So if you if uh, if you lay down the chip as Indian and kind of force Harley back to the to the uh, to the table here, so to speak. But I think that it, it creates an overall improved interest in, in the sport and in that style of motorcycle. And it, uh, if, if we, they can spur the interest, uh, spur the lifestyle, it, it improves both brands. And there's room for more than one brand, I think. Um, and I think that that's a good competitive thing. And, and I think also it starts to show these are the original X Games. I mean, flat tracking is an original X Games. In fact, it's been included in X Games. And, so it's, it's so exciting, it's so close to watch, and it creates a new lifestyle. I mean, so it's not just the Harley Davidson lifestyle and the Indian lifestyle, it's a racing lifestyle that, that's kind of gone slack for a long time. And that excitement and going to the races, getting the family going, it's not a hooligan crowd necessarily, but it's a, it's a real, it's a family crowd. You can go for the evening, have a great time, see some great races, and it gets you off the, uh, off the telephone, you know, and the, and, the, and the games, and you can see it for real. You know, Mike, I was adding up, I think that the, uh, uh, you know, in, in racing, that I look at my life of having, uh, you know, racing be a, be a part of that and all the things that we uh, end up doing. And I just think that uh, a win on Sunday, you know, the motorcycle manufacturer have a lot of different models within their lines to, uh, you know, to be able to, uh, uh, to try to sell. And only one's gonna, one model's going to win that thing. So one doesn't just, it's not like they're going to sell a lot of that one. But it's going to give their, their owners something to brag about. It's going to build some brand loyalties. And I think racing has always been good for that. It, it takes it into something that people can be passionate about. They talk about and involved. You know, unlike your steering phone or your TV set, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just a, you know, that's just something that kind of come on to get you by. But uh, uh, when people are involved in racing, and Twitch, and you get your people involved, your, your, your fan base behind it, your owners clubs, all of that, and thing. I think the sport is just healthy. Yeah, and I think with uh, it being screened on national television this year, people can really join a team. Up until now, there hasn't been that great American rivalry. Now they can actually stand behind something, keep track of who's, who's winning different rounds, if the Breckman crews, you know, and then it, because of the dealers, the network of dealers, Harley dealerships and Indian dealerships, you kind of have that hub of a community where people kind of gather and that actually helps spread the brand. People can really be a part of something, you know, which they haven't seen. Haven't been in, in a while. So that's our show, folks. Uh, thank you very much. Our apologies to Mark Hoyer, to Richard Varner, Nevin Pontius, 
and Don MD and everyone at the Peterson Motorcycle or Peterson Automotive Museum. Sorry for calling it the Motorcycle Museum, but we know what parts are important. We will have some pictures up on creative writing over the weekend, probably, and our article. And also, check out the events. If you're down at Daytona Bike Week right now, have fun, be safe, pop some wheelies, say hi to anybody that you see, like, you know, Brian Bell from Ivy League. Go check out the the, uh, Clash on the Concrete. Go check out the Daytona 200. Such a historic event. Other things that they talked about at that seminar was why Harley means freedom, um, why motorcycling is only considered commuting over here, um, you know, why the rivalry started and what the world wars actually did for Harley and, and for Indian and how that meant survival and changing of our, you know, basically of our landscape and you don't think about it but stuff that happened way back then is still shaping stuff that happens now so thank you very much go check out johnny j and the flatfoot flugies if you're up in the spokane area and if you're down in socal any of those things i mentioned earlier there's so much stuff going on this weekend um slam at creative-writing.com send in your stories for the solstice slam we'd love to get some more and other than that have a great weekend peace and chicken grease george r hendy took up boaters motorcycle racing hendy was america's first national psyching shit uh, another boy, William's lifelong. How many beers fit? What? Oh, I'm so drunk. Oh.